Well, my name is Godwin. For those of you that don't know me, I am the interim senior pastor of this church. And uh, this is a, a unique Sunday morning because uh, we have just said goodbye to Pastor Jeremy. And uh, this is the first Sunday after Pastor Jeremy has uh, left our church. And so it's a, it's a unique Sunday if you're visiting. This is week number one of this unique season in the life of our church we are looking for a senior pastor, and so you can be praying about that. There's a lot of uncertainty in our church, of course, as we look forward. We don't know who the senior pastor will be. We don't know whether we're going to like him. We don't know when he's going to be here. There's a lot of uncertainty as we look to our future. But, you know, as I was thinking about our church, there's also a lot of certainty as we look to our future, isn't there? There are things that we can count on that will continue. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of three things. Maybe you can think of more. First of all, the Word of God. The church will continue to proclaim the Word of God, book by book, slowly, because we believe this is what the church is founded on. Secondly, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus has come to save sinners. We believe this is the power of God unto salvation, and that means that when we preach the gospel, if we continue to preach the gospel, we will see, by God's grace, more conversions, more baptisms, more members joining our church, more of us growing in our faith. The Word of God, the gospel of Jesus. A third thing, we are a spiritual family. Have you thought about that before? We are sons and daughters of the king. We are a unique spiritual family. We are not together because we are Patriots fans or Celtics fans or Red Sox fans. We are those things. And they bring us together, yes. But there is something deeper at work in this church. Deeper and more profound. And so our bonds run very deep and strong. The word of God, the gospel of Jesus the family of God. This is who we are. This is what we're built on. But you know, there's something deeper, I think, more profound that we can also trust in these days ahead. Something fundamental to our church's existence, and that is the ever-present, all-encompassing love of God. It's what we've been singing about this morning. If the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus, and the, the, the spiritual family are kind of the bricks that build up the church, then God's love is the, the foundation. It's the foundation stone that holds us together, that keeps us together. So how do we know, church, that God still loves us? How do we know that? That's, I think, what we're often battling in our hearts as we consider the future. Does he really love us? Is he really for us? Does he really want good things for us? Has he planned more blessings for us? Or as we look at the future, is he going to withhold something from this church? Maybe bypass us and give it to another church. If we're going to trust God to lead this church, then we need to be convinced, convinced that he loves us. So how do we know that God still loves South Shore Baptist Church? How do we know that he's still committed to us? 
That's what I'd like to answer this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 42, verse 18. You can turn there. It's page 718 in your pew Bible. And here's the main idea of the message. I'm going to give it to you now, and then we're going to slowly unpack this idea. We know God loves our church because he is committed to reforming us, to rescuing us, and to deploying us for his glory. I'll say that again. We know God loves this church, South Shore Baptist Church, because he is committed to, first of all, reforming us, secondly, rescuing us, and then lastly, to deploying us for his glory. So let me read verses 18 through 25, chapter 42. Hear, you deaf. Look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but have paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. God's word. So here's God's first commitment to this church. He is committed to reforming us. These are some very stark, difficult, somewhat depressing verses. Let's look, in, let's look into these verses a little bit. Now, there's a surprise in this passage, and that's this servant. Did you notice in verse 19, this servant is blind? Verse 19 says, Who is blind but my servant and deaf like the messenger? Now, I thought the servant was actually a good guy. Do you remember the sermon from last week? The servant was the one who was actually restoring sight to the blind. But here we see the servant is blind. So what's going on? Well, let's look back at chapter 42, verses 6 and 7. You'll see a little bit of what's going on. There's two servants. 42, verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you, he's talking to the servants, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hands. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, here it is, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So this servant, the servant that we talked about last week, is a servant that that brings sight to people, that releases people from prison. But the passage that I just read, 42, 18 through 25, all of a sudden, this servant is blind. Well, we've got two servants. The first servant delivers God's people in the world. That servant's Jesus. That's what we found out last week. And then there's another servant here who needs to be delivered, who needs to receive spiritual sight, and that's God's people, the nation of Israel. 
Now, we need to understand the background of this passage to see what's going on a little bit here. Israel disobeys God. This is what happened. Israel disobeyed God, and they get sucked into idol worship. Start worshiping pagan idols. And so God, because he loves his people, he exiles them. He allows Babylon, another nation, to come and capture his people. Look at verse 22. This is a people, that's Israel, plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prison. So that's a description of Babylon taking away God's people. So what God does then is he sends prophets, he sends Isaiah, he sends all of these other prophets to come and to preach a message of repentance to Israel. But they don't listen. Look at verse 20. You, Israel, have seen many things but have paid no attention. Your ears are open but you hear nothing. Verse 23. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Verse 25, so he poured out on them, Israel, his burning anger, the violence of war, and this is Babylon coming in. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. So here's the main idea. God is trying so hard to reform his people. He is trying so hard to get their attention and to change them, to call them back to him. But they don't listen. They don't listen. You know, Israel's a lot like a toddler. You know toddlers. They're so difficult, aren't they? I've got a toddler right now. You know, hey, 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 don't touch that. Please don't touch that. Okay, you're touching that. (laughs) Stop touching that. I told you don't touch that. You're still touching that, right? Israel is like a toddler. And the main picture Isaiah gives us here is that of spiritual blindness and deafness. First of all, they're blind to God's purposes. You notice that Isaiah calls Israel my servant in verse 19 and the messenger I send in verse 19 as well. They were supposed to be this nation that God would use to show off his glory to all of the surrounding nations. That was their purpose. But they abdicated that role and they decided to go their own way. So first of all, they were blind to God's purposes. They were also blind to God's discipline. Look again at verse 25. God pours out his anger, his his violence, there's flames, and yet they did not understand. It's that kid that goes and burns his hand on the stove, goes back again. Why did they do that? Well, they haven't learned their lesson. Their idolatry, Israel's idolatry, has led them to a lack of spiritual perception. They can't see, they can't hear the things of God. They've become spiritually insensitive. Their their spiritual nerve endings have grown to be numb. Now, we've all been here, right? All of us. We've all experienced this, let's be honest. We give ourselves to idols too, whether it's sex or career or entertainment or a host of other things. And as we give ourselves to these idols, what happens? We become blind to the things of God. We lose traction in our walks with God. We lose the ability to hear from God. And we're in our homes and maybe our spouse or someone says, hey, let's read the Bible and pray. And we'd rather do a host of other things. Where does that come from? We come to church and we, uh, you know, we sing songs and they feel flat. We pray prayers and they're, they're flimsy. We listen to sermons, and it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher is speaking to us. 
You know, maybe the fires of your own sins are burning you a little right now. Is that where you are at? Is that where God has you? Oh, here's my advice to you if that's you. Don't cover your ears. Don't cover your ears. Listen to God because he is speaking to you. Because he doesn't give up on his people. Even when they're in sin, he's speaking to us even when we're struggling. The question is, are we listening? He's putting a megaphone up through our pain, through our struggle, through our difficulty. He's trying to get our attention. But we've got to listen, brothers and sisters. If you are not yet a Christian, you're here this morning, and this is uh, resonating with you. You know, maybe you look at some of these descriptions and you think, wow, I feel deaf. I feel blind. I feel plundered and looted and trapped in pits. I feel like I'm hidden away in prisons. No one sees me. If this is how you feel, well, let me encourage you, do not resist God in this moment. Listen to him. Ask him to open up your eyes, open up your ears to see and to hear that he is great and good and glorious. And if you, if you say that prayer, he's going to answer. He's going to help you. There's an application here for this church as well, and here it is. God's people always need reformation. God's people always need reformation. You know, a few days ago, we celebrated uh, a lot of good things. We had, uh, those of you that weren't there, we had uh, over 500 people at this great celebration here at this church Friday night to, to celebrate um, Pastor Jeremy and Pastor Seth as we say goodbye to them. Great is thy faithfulness. That was the, the hymn that we saw, sang because we were celebrating not just these two men, but God's faithfulness to this church over the course of decades. I've only been here for five years, and I, I was so encouraged just to hear about the history of this church. And, you know, we really do stand on the shoulders of many saints. And it's all marked by God's grace to this church through many, many men and women. I don't want to take any of that for granted. And it's all true. By by God's grace, we are a healthy church. I believe that, but we are not a perfect church. We'll never be a perfect church. And maybe, just maybe, during this interim season, maybe God wants to get our attention. Maybe there's some things he wants to work on in this church. Are, Are there places where we need to repent as a church? Have we grown to be proud? Have we lost our affection for Jesus? Have we lost our desire to see lost people on the South Shore come to know Jesus? Please hear me. I don't have an agenda here. I'm asking questions genuinely. You know, typically during interim seasons, churches take stock about who they are, where they need growth, and and where they're weak, and where, where they need to grow. Can I suggest to you, friends, that we prayerfully consider before the Lord areas where we as a church need to grow? And I pray that we will listen to him as he reveals things to us. Israel failed to listen, and they became blind and deaf and trapped. May we as a church, brothers and sisters, become quick to see, quick to hear, quick to obey.
So first of all, how do we know that God loves this church? Well, God is committed to reforming us, to changing us. He's not going to leave us the same because he loves us. The second commitment, verses 1 through 7 in the next chapter. God is committed to rescuing us. Look at this. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you up from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Chapter 42 ends with no hope. There's no rescue. The fires are burning Israel and they aren't listening. No hope of rescue. So now what? I love that first word in chapter 43. But. 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 One little word that is loaded with so much meaning. The Seattle Seahawks are on the one-yard line with uh, 26 seconds left to go. They've got the best running back in the country. And they're about to win the game. But. But they don't run the ball. They throw the ball. Malcolm Butler, who's Malcolm Butler? Intercepts the ball. And the Patriots win the game. But, what a powerful word, right? God's people can be blind and deaf and imprisoned and burned by God's fire with no hope of rescue. But, but God... God intervenes. God loves his people. Think about this with me, brothers and sisters. God is profoundly committed to his people. Are you in his fires right now? He's coming for you. He's not going to let you go. That's what the bud is all about here. The bud of Isaiah 43 doesn't signal any change in us. Nothing's changed in us. The people of Israel, they haven't repented. It has nothing to do with us. The but declares God's mercy towards sinners. No matter what we've done, no matter how far we've fallen, no matter how bad things have gotten, if we are one of his, he's coming for us and he's going to rescue us. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Now, do you see God's commitments to his people in these verses that I read? We sang about this. Actually, the choir just sang about this. Listen to this. I created you. I formed you. I have redeemed you. I have summoned you. I've called you by my name. You are 
mine. I will be with you. The waters, they're not going to sweep over you. The flames, they're not going to set you ablaze. You are precious. You are honored in my sight. I love you. You know, what's even more moving than this is God belongs to us. It's not just we belong to him. God belongs to us. Listen to this. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Here's what I think this means. What matters most about you is not what you deserve. What matters most about you is whose you are. What matters most about you is not what you deserve. What you deserve is the flames. What I deserve are the flames. What matters most about me and you is whose we are, and we are the Lord's. We are marked by the Lord's love. The disciplines of, God's, the disciplines of God are real. Looking at verse 2, there are going to be waters. There's going to be rivers that, that are going to creep up. There's going to be fires that are going to burn us a little bit. But they are not God's final word for his people. His final word for his people, for this church, is mercy and rescue. He's going to be with us. And so because we are God's people, because he has called us and redeemed us, the fires of chapter 42, they're not going to burn us up. They're not going to destroy us. Before the but now, they consumed us and we had no hope. But after the but now, God's intervention They're trials that are only going to purify us, these fires. I was thinking about what's the worst thing that can happen to Christians? Wow, that's a big question, I know. I was thinking about the murders that took place by ISIS on the beaches of the Middle East. Horrible things. You know, those flames are not burning those folks up. Even those folks, even those trials didn't ultimately destroy those Christians God never abandons his people, never, even in death. He doesn't abandon his people. We may abandon him, he doesn't abandon us. Now take a look at verses 3 and 4. We're going to see more about God's rescue plan here. It says, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. And then at the end of verse 4, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. These are different nations that God is going to, that God is willing to ransom for his precious people, Israel. This is not only a historical reality for God's people, but this idea of ransom and exchange is a picture of salvation. That's what I want to point out. Here's what I mean God saved Israel over and over and over again by judging their enemies. There's a pattern that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Let me show you quickly. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal so that Adam and Eve's shame will be covered. In the days of Noah, the whole world was judged with waters, but Noah and his family were preserved on an ark. In Egypt, salvation came to Israel through judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, all those plagues. And here we see another instance of God's willingness to do the same to deliver his people. This is an intentional theme that runs through the courses of Scripture. Salvation comes to God's people through judgment on God's enemies. 
And you know where it finds its culmination? At the cross. At the cross. Jesus was treated as if he was the enemy of God so that we would be redeemed. He was the blood money. He was the ransom. God said, I give Jesus for your ransom. God said, I will give Jesus in exchange for your life. If you're not yet a Christian, you need to understand this truth. Jesus was sent by God as a ransom for sinners. And so if you are blind and if you are deaf and if you don't, you know, if you do feel plundered and looted and trapped, there's good news. There is someone who is paying the price, the ransom price for you. Nobody can make that payment. Nobody except Jesus. The price has been paid, and you only need to turn from your sins and repent. Looking at the end of this section, verses 5 through 7, what God's doing is gathering Israel because they're, you know, they're exiled. They're in different parts of the Middle East, and so he's gathering them back together. Notice verse 7. As he's gathering, back to, uh, gathering the nation back together, he says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So he is saving this people. He's gathering this people back together so they may live for his glory. He wants Israel to be a living advertisement about how good God is to a people that do not deserve his grace. That's his goal. Have you heard about the Copernican Revolution? Uh, before the year 1543, the world operated under the false assumption that the entire universe rotates around the earth. Okay? But then came this guy, Nicholas Copernicus, and he said, actually, he was doing research, and he said, actually, the earth revolves around the sun, and so do some of these other planets. Well, as I was thinking about salvation and, and God's rescue, salvation is really a Copernican revolution of our souls. When we become Christians, we have new eyes to see reality. And here's reality. There is a new center of the universe. Actually, he's always been the center of the universe, but it's new to us. It's not ourselves any longer. It's God. He is the sun in our solar system. And salvation is bringing order and reality to our chaotic worlds. Salvation is a Copernican revolution. So don't think, brothers and sisters, that God is playing a support role in a movie that features you. That's the opposite, right? His purpose is to bring glory of his salvation into our experience. He's going to save us. He's going to rescue us despite what we deserve so that he will be admired and delighted in. That's the order. So what's the application here for us? Well, we want to rejoice in God's rescue, yes. We want to feel loved by God's rescue, absolutely. But Isaiah gives us another application. Do you see it in verse 1? He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Then look at verse 5. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Fear not. Don't be afraid. God may be disciplining you. Don't be afraid. He loves you, and he's not going to abandon you. God may be sifting this church. He may be refining this church for his glory. Don't be afraid for our good. He is a loving parent and he's loving us. So we are often blind, imprisoned, and burned in God's fires because of our sins, but, but God has rescued us. 
So is that the end of our story? Blind but rescued. Is that the end of our story? No, that's not the end of our story. We're missing a critical piece here. I want to read a few more verses. Verses 8 through 13. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Wow. So what is going on in these verses? Well, God is setting up a mock trial, and he's trying to show the world who he is. This is the heart of God. This is what he's trying to accomplish in this mock trial. He wants everyone, not just his own people, he wants every nation to come to recognize, first of all, that he is God, and second of all, that he is the only Savior. There's no other options. We see this in verses 11 through 13. He says, I, even I, am the Lord. Apart from me, there is no Savior. In verse 13, yes, and from ancient days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? You know, Jesus said the same thing about himself in the New Testament. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no room in the gospel for the idea that Jesus is only one of many spiritual paths. Listen, Jesus is not even the best way. Jesus is the only way. The only way to salvation. The apostles said the same thing in the book of Acts. They said, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name, no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. No other name, brothers and sisters. So in this trial, God is challenging his rivals. He's calling them out almost in mocking fashion. He's saying, come on, bring it. It's almost like, uh, you know, uh, Elijah and Baal on the mount, uh, was it uh, Mount Carmel? It's almost this little battle that was going on. And his intention is to put all rival glories out of business because the idols of the world are life-depleting and joy-killing. God doesn't want his people to be worshiping at these idols because every idol in our lives wants its pound of flesh, right? You sacrifice to the idol of career, and it's going to want its pound of flesh, and it's going to keep demanding more and more and more. And it will never satisfy. But that's not Jesus when you worship at his altar. The surprise in this section is verse 10. You are my witnesses. How is God going to put these rival idols out of business? Well, he announces that the blind captives, they're going to be his witnesses. Now imagine a lawyer bringing out a deaf and blind witness to testify to what they have seen and heard. 
It's kind of ridiculous. And of course, these people, by God's grace, they've been transformed. So now they do see, they do hear, they have been set free. So they are great witnesses. And they would become a living evidence of God's unique salvation. They would witness to these nations in the courtroom of the world that God alone can save. Do you remember Jesus in the book of Acts at the beginning, right before he ascended into heaven, his last words to his disciples? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, you will be my witnesses. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the world. So God not only saves us out of blindness and captivity, but he deploys us as his witnesses in the courtroom of the world. What a privilege. Have you thought about this? What a privilege we have to be God's witnesses. It's incredible. He could, have, he could have done something else. He could have figured out a different way to get the word out. But he has chosen to use broken jars of clay, cracked pots, right? Weak people, people that are prone to blindness and deafness. He's chosen to use us, of all people, to be his witnesses of his salvation I want you to pull out your bulletin insert for just a moment. I'm not going to read this to you, but it says at the top, coming coming together to fulfill God's vision. Coming together to fulfill God's vision. We're going to dedicate the rest of the month of May to talking about being witnesses in the South Shore. We have this five-year focus of being a disciple-making church that plants disciple-making churches. And so we're going to take some time to talk about this. I want to encourage you maybe this afternoon to read through this. This is kind of what we're going to offer. We have some special things planned moving forward. So take some time to look at this. I want to encourage you to come to, um, come to these events. Start praying for our church, if you haven't already, that God would move in our midst as we discuss this five-year focus. Come to these special Sunday school um, kind of workshops that we're going to offer. We want to keep learning about what it looks like to be God's disciple makers on the South Shore. Because here's the thing, being on mission isn't an optional extra. Sometimes we think that. It's for super Christians, it's for pastors, it's for missionaries, it's for elders of the church. Now, being on mission is not an add-on to the Christian life. It is the Christian life. It's the purpose of for which God rescued his people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's why we exist, brothers and sisters. We live our lives constantly in the courtroom of the world, don't we? The question isn't whether we're missionaries. The question is, who are we missionaries for? The question isn't whether we are witnesses or not. The question is, what do we give witness to? Our lives are are speaking something. What are they saying? So we're going to spend three weeks considering further God's disciple-making plan for this church. You know, in this courtroom, it's not just the nations that gather. It's the people of Weymouth and Hingham and Situate and Hull. It's the people of Braintree and Quincy and Abington and Marshfield. They're in this courtroom as well. And in this courtroom, they see their gods as winning. And we hear their arguments all the time. The path 
path of life is the path of money or career development or political utopianism or seeking the perfect body or a host of other things. And if you don't sacrifice to these idols, they'll tell you your career is going to be over. Your hope of a, of a perfect world will be shattered. Your self-image will be devastated. But here's the thing. We are in this courtroom too. We are in this courtroom too, the courtroom of the South Shore, and they are watching us. They're watching us as we chat on their porches, as we play with their kids on the lawn, as we go to PTO meetings, as we work side by side with them. They're watching us, and they're listening to our lives and our words. What are we saying? What will be our testimony? Will our living testimony be to actually false idols? that bring blindness and deafness? Will our words and deeds point to a worship of career or money or sports or self-image? Will we show that we actually love other things more than we love Jesus through our lives? Wouldn't that be a tragedy, brothers and sisters? Wouldn't it be a tragedy that we as God's people, marked by his love, might witness to other gods? That was Israel's problem. May it not be our problem, church. I want to read you an excerpt from something that a woman named Ruth Reardon wrote. This was written after uh, the, the sanctuary was built many decades ago. And uh, Ruth was one of the early members of South Shore Baptist Church. And I encourage you to read this. It is, it is wonderful. I think our office has a few copies, and we would love to get this to you. Uh, just as we're remembering who we are as a church, where we've come from, right? Let me read you how she ends this. It's, it's beautiful. This is right after the uh, old sanctuary was built and the church started meeting. She says, Thus, the house of the Lord was built, and the first service turned into a missionary conference to emphasize that was the reason the church was formed. The white, typically New England steeple points upwards towards the heavens, proclaiming its message of salvation through faith in Christ, the Son of God. The faith of its members is that succeeding generations will worship in it, free and unhindered by compromise, that souls will be saved in it, that children will be taught in it until the Lord Jesus returns. But the joyful peculiar blessing of this season as the first services are held will always belong to the present members who have seen unfold before their very eyes this manifestation that God is still the miracle-performing, all-powerful Lord who asks only that Christians put Jesus first. Listen, brothers and sisters, God is still the miracle-performing, all-powerful Lord. We stand on the shoulders of such folks. This is our legacy. The question is, where will we go moving forward as we sit in the courtroom of the South Shore? My dream for South Shore Baptist Church is that we will dare to declare, dare to declare through our words and lives that there is no other name, no other name by which we can be saved except Jesus. My dream is that our lives will declare together the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ alone, that his name will be on our lips, not the names of idols. 
My dream is that this church would become a, a compelling, dynamic, magnetic community, that we would draw people to ourselves, not because of anything spectacular about us, but because we are marked by the insatiable love of God. And we passionately want to share it with others. Will that be our testimony, church? Will we as a church together lift high the name of Jesus in the courtroom of the South Shore? I believe by God's grace that we will. Let's pray. Father, we... We confess to you that we are often blind and deaf and held captive by our own sin. And Lord, you have been speaking to us, but we, we turn away from you and we go our own way. Father, forgive us for these sins. Father, thank you for rescuing us out of the pits that we have formed for ourselves. Thank you for taking us out of the pit and giving us new life because of Jesus. Thank you for the ransom, the blood-bought price that was paid through the cross for sinners like us. And Father, as we consider this new life, may we not forget that we are, regardless of who we are, where we're at, what we're doing, we are called to be witnesses for Jesus. May we lift high his name, Lord, in this place on the South Shore. We pray in Christ's name, amen.